Warning! Today's story is anatomically explicit and is recommended for mature audiences only, regardless of age. Escape Pod 69 Baby August 31st, 2006 Today's story, heard by Tobias S. Bukhill. Hello, and welcome again to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and I'm just stopping to take a few breaths right now between Worldcon and DragonCon. To everyone I met at Worldcon this past weekend, thank you so much. I had an incredible time. The party suite that Evil and I threw, with the support of Podcast Ready, was a huge success, with hundreds of people coming through it every night. This was largely thanks to DJ Steve Boy of the Podrunner Podcast, who volunteered his time to spin some excellent dance music all three nights. We were told by a lot of people that ours was the party to be at this year, and a couple of people even told me that ours was the one they felt most comfortable spending some time at and talking. This was kind of a strange con for me. As I've said many times here, my favorite way to spend a science fiction convention is at the hotel bar with my friends. I did manage to squeeze a little of that in, but mostly I was there to represent something, a skate pod, and that's a new experience. I was on nine panels, I had an excellent coffee clatch, and those parties. It was a little weird, frankly, to be there for something bigger than my own fun, and to have a real schedule. But on the upside, I got to meet a lot more people than I usually do, and I learned some important things. I learned that more people have heard of podcasting than I'd thought, and caught the idea pretty quick. I learned that writers and fans are ready to take this market seriously, and that the goals I started this over, to keep the fun in short science fiction, are ones that a lot of other people believe in. People think we can do this, and we're willing to work together to make it happen. To me, that makes the whole trip worth it. Starting it all over again for DragonCon, well, I think I can find some energy somewhere. Meanwhile, let's bring you all a story. It's a sort of parable by Tobias S. Bakel called Her. We've run Mr. Bakel very recently with a green thumb. We usually don't put stories by the same author so close together, but this just seemed like the right week to do this. Mr. Bakel is a full-time writer living in Bluffton, Ohio, with his first novel out from Tor, Crystal Rain. He's also, incidentally, the one guy I spent all of Worldcon almost meeting. My friend Aaron would run off to say hi to someone, and then run back and say, Oh, that was Toby! Or Scott would mention that we just passed him on the escalator. No one ever quite managed to introduce me, and I kept saying, Don't let me miss him next time. By the end, he'd taken on mythic, larger-than-life proportions. So now I have a quest for the next convention. And speaking of larger than life, it's story time. Her by Tobias S. Bakel. Cultural anthropologist Joe Anderson was not an exotic woman, but as she talked about her work, a sort of fire built up in her pale green eyes. The tiny hint of a smile tugged the corners of her mouth, transforming her into something almost radiant and certainly a little bit more than just attractive but it was hard as hell to try and pay much attention to an animated Joe Anderson when a 300-mile-long... Well, there were ogling blue-collar men sitting around the window who you could tell had just been shipped in. The main feature of the bay windows on this side of the tow lounge was the view of giant, soft, sloping legs stretching far up into the horizon. I was being manipulated, and I knew it. The Chin had better selections of restaurants... But Joe pretty much figured that if she sat me next to a window, looking up the thighs of the 6,500-mile-long woman we walked the surface of, I would let her say yes to whatever it was her department wanted. 
So, of course, I murmured yes. It's fascinating, Joe said, now that she had what she wanted out of me, that the inhabitants here are the only race we know of that has their mythology dead on. Huh? I looked down at the table. I needed more beer. I usually tried not to come face to face with the reality of existence on her. They believe they live on the corpse of a giant. Maybe it's because they do, I said, sneaking another look back down the inner thigh that dominated the western hemisphere. A month later, I sat in a bar with Director Thomas. Thomas was a short, chubby man with a goatee and a shrewd sort of ruddy intelligence that comes from being administration. It ran in his family, he told me once. My great-grandfather Barry was an administrator of a starplex. Grandma Stella ran an intergalactic courier service. Dad ran things here when we first landed. And Uncle Brad ran things after Dad died in the Cheek Wars. Referring to the nuclear exchange responsible for the blemish on the left cheek. And my brother runs shipping and trade out by the toe. As far as we can trace it back, we've run things. Thomas showed me a piece of paper with my signature on it. We were on the top of the chin on the edge of the dimple that overlooked the sharp roller-coaster drop of her neck that flowed into the deep valley between her ample but firm breasts. For a coin, you could use one of the telescopes and zoom in on the spaceport on the left areola, or see the developments of skyscrapers being built into the hill-like curves. Zoom in again, and one could even see the lattices of tracks being laid down for trains, like veins, only raised and ridged across the acres and acres of skin. Is there any particular reason you allowed Anderson to take off for the pubic region? She took me to the toe lounge, I said. Thomas rolled his eyes, but folded the paper and put it away. I've been trying to keep her out of that region for the past year. The indigenes lived among the thick pubic hair, declared a protected reserve. They logged the massive hairs and used them for building houses, pulped them into clothing and paper, and build roads with them. In fact, several hundred years of logging had resulted in bare patches. Eventually, maybe, the pubic area would become smooth. You're going to have to do better than that, Thomas said. Come on, if one group gets to go into the pubic area, everyone else will want to. I sipped a beer. A large starship, easily ten miles long, winked into existence and spiraled in towards the left breast, plasma streaming out its tail end as it jetted towards the spaceport. Thomas... How long do you really think any indigenous group will be left alone or unassimilated? I asked. Who knows, he replied. But we have to try and respect that this is their land. The universe is not only stranger, I thought. On Thursday, I met with representatives of several of the major local churches. I didn't enjoy meeting with those of the religious persuasion, as they were still a bit hot and cold about the idea of a giant human floating in space at the edge of the known universe. Some said she was God. Other, more patriarchal religions strongly protested, though the possibility really aided them. So I sarcastically suggested that we meet at the toe lounge, but they politely declined, and instead settled for a location on the dome of her head, near one of the major logging and mining operations. When men first landed, they cleared most of the locals out, taking the prime logging areas, the long locks of space-dark, carefully braided hair that stretched down to the shoulders. Sections of the scalp near the top of the head were already showing, thanks to years of zealous logging. The hair could be used for orbital tethers. It was incredibly strong. Other uses abounded, although it involved smelting the hair to reform it. Mining operations found bone to be the most troublesome substance, but ground back up it could be used as the most remarkable concrete. 
The skin, tanned and dried, could be found in stores sewed as canopies, or if combined with muscle, composted to provide an excellent loam. So it was here I met the church members, some of them dressed in formal robes, others in jeans and loose shirts. Catholics and Protestants, Buddhists, Muslim, Methodist, Taoist, Moonies, Hare Krishna, and so on. I wondered what miraculous act had brought most of humanity's religions all together on accord. We want you to cover up the genitalia, they said, and handed me a long printout on pale, fleshy parchment, with hundreds of names cut into it. It is an affront to decency and encourages moral decrepitude. How is that? I asked, genuinely curious. Men should not see such things, Jean Grady muttered. It is pornographic that the thousands of people living on the leg see her daily and lust for her. My head hurt. How exactly do you suggest I do this? I said. Do you happen to have some hundred-odd square miles of fabric? Leather can be made out of skin, Father O'Toole declared. Just between the ribs is easily mineable. And expensive, I said. Unless you're going to do it yourself, we'll do no such thing. Then we would like to pass an edict stating that no man should pass the waistline. If you would pass such a thing on to your congregations, I said, that would be fine. But I'm not going to pass any such edict. The taxes on toenail mining are generous and fund most of our civic projects. And that was that. They all left in a dark mood, and I continued to sit there, ordering lunch. Thomas showed me his latest headache on his desk. Requests from various distant mining companies to come in and compete. Particularly, Mining Under Firth, Incorporated was putting up a large bid to come in and mine the outer and inner labia. They say they can do this with minimal impact on the inhabitants. I nodded. Thomas sighed. Some religious leaders have expressed an interest in letting them come in. They're hoping they can get the entire area mined out, or at least rendered unrecognizable. I'm not surprised, I said. Three months, and Joe's group was sending us back enthusiastic reports by satellite on the local culture and habits, the first such real records in almost fifty years. The inhabitants believed that since they lived on the body of a woman, the broad stream of the Milky Way in the sky was actually a fertilizing stream of sperm. It was apparently from a male deity in the act of ejaculation. They called it the Big Bang. Thomas called me up to meet with the Starship Guild captain. His name was Evergrore, and he had thick vacuum-proof reddish skin. His large all-black eyes bubbled out ridiculously, and he didn't wear any clothes. His genitalia slid back up into a radiation-proof slit, which made all the Starship Guild people look like they had vaginas, whether male or female. He said he was the keeper of records, a sort of historian, and started to tell a hell of a story about a group of old Earth fellows who'd set out at a slower-than-light ship. I looked at Thomas. Thomas looked at me and we both shrugged. Evergore's story beat going into the industrial zoning debate raging in our office over the armpit regions. The name of the ship was Seed of Hope, and they wanted to settle the star system according to their own religious beliefs, he said. But every time they showed up, someone would be there already. Then they would re-equip their ship with the latest technology found at the latest stop and try again. This went on for almost 2,000 years, until finally they aimed their ship off into the abyss, aiming at no star, no reasonable destination. Hey, I cried out, seeing where this was going. We were located in a similar location, in the middle of nowhere. Yes, we, the Starship Guild, have identified the remains of Seed of Hope, lodged in the inside of the toenail of the left little toe. The inhabitants aren't really habitants. 
Thomas leaned back in his chair. I leaned back in mine. Would you be willing to make a public statement? Thomas asked. Evergore nodded. For a small fee, of course. Of course. As we all knew, mining rights to the pubic area were worth quite a bit. We weren't even sure if this chap was telling the truth, but it provided the perfect opportunity we needed to undermine the bleeding-heart environmentalists that claimed we needed to leave her body untouched. I was silent on the flight back from the press conference at the tip of the left breast. We flew over the ribs briefly, and I could see the rows of fertile valleys and gentle rolling hills, patchworks of green agriculture and food production. Then on to the foundries set between her breasts, belching fire into the air. I squelched the feeling that we'd done something wrong, and took a nap. When Joe got back, I took her sailing in the right corner of the right eye. Salt filled the air as a slight wind crossed the large sea of agate pupil. We were on a delightful little catch made out of hair plank, and it tracked into the wind just beautifully. The rope snapped as I dodged us around other traffic and sailed out in no particular direction. Somewhere out there we paused to eat lunch, a fruit basket I'd put together. In the far distant north, great eyelashes curved up into the sky, blocking out the harsh sunlight of the distant sun we orbited. "'Do you ever wonder about her?' Joe asked. "'About who?' "'All this.' She made a gesture. I shrugged and ate a turkey sandwich. "'But what about it all? What will happen when the inhabitants get assimilated? What will we do when we use it all up?' "'I think about that sometimes,' I said. "'But it won't happen any time soon.' Joe smiled and reached down in the water, cleaning her face. The sea glistened on her cheeks as she lay back in repose and looked up at the sky. The old Earthers, some of them used to believe, before they became advanced, that it was Mother Earth. Earth is a dump, I told her. I went there once. Joe unwrapped a sandwich. But it didn't used to be. I know. After the sandwich, we hoisted the sails and headed for shore. Later that night, I even managed to seduce her. The next morning, of course, Thomas and I drew up plans for putting a new rail system down the gentle curve of the stomach and down between the legs. Already new skyscrapers were going up on the inner thighs. There was a lot to be done. And that was our story. I've told women before that they were the world to me, but I'm glad it was never this literal. We had a number of good comments to last week's story, Depth of Field, about Ed Wood. There was a lot of debate about the ending, which I won't give away for you. Kate said, I listened to this twice, and in the end I found it misogynist. That provoked some thought for me, too. I'm not Stephen Dedman, and I don't believe in asking the author, what did you mean by that? I think the story should speak for itself. But the sense of it I got was that maybe he didn't want to glorify the whole low-budget cheesy film genre too much. He didn't want to make the Ed Woods of the world look too heroic, so he went out with an ironic bang. Again, that's just my speculation. It isn't any better than yours. Simon made a very thoughtful post, as usual. Among other things, he said, What I really wanted to comment on was your bit about literary SF at the end. You said that the stories have to have strong pacing and action. Really? That's really sad. My three favorite stories you've ever done are Shadow Boxer, Crap Hound, and Robots and Falling Hearts, none of which are particularly action-packed and all certainly slow-paced. Science fiction is about hitting the reader with ideas, and viewing it as a form of escapism really lowers the tone of the genre. Thanks, Simon. 
It's interesting you bring this up, since I was just on a panel at Worldcon called "In Defense of Escapist Literature." I may develop this a bit further in a future intro, but my nutshell response is that I don't believe the two goals are exclusive. I think it's possible for a story to be a fun escapist read and deep, and the three stories mentioned are good examples of that. You say they're slow-paced, but if you compare them to some significant quote literary stories that we haven't run, I think things happen in them at a pretty good rate. In any case, don't worry, we will keep buying stories like that, for many possible values of like that. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license. Share it with your friends. Share it with strangers. Share it with all the woodland animals. I'm pretty sure they all have MP3 players by now. Finally, this is a somewhat late notice for anyone who's planning to attend. But if you're hearing this at DragonCon, I'm running the Daily Dragon podcast, which is an audio version of the newsletter. You can find it at dragoncon.net/dailydragon, or listed in newsletters throughout the con. I'll also be on some panels and in an encore performance of Lancelot Biggs, Spaceman. Which was a real hit at Balticon. Our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju. They'll be testing the structural integrity of the hotels at DragonCon on Friday at midnight. Come and hear them rock. You'll see me there too. That was our show for this week. We'll be back again next week, and it's even possible I'll have slept between now and then. Thanks for listening, and have fun. <laughs> <laughs>